1: Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Morgan Brennan. Mike Santoli, Jim and David have the morning off. Here comes the give back after the best two-day S&P rally in more than two years. A near 6% gain. OPEX meeting in focus. ADP with a slight beat. Ten-year yield back above 3.7. Our roadmap begins with the best two days for stocks, as we said, since April 2020. But futures do point to a pullback at the open.
2: Plus, a Vienna cut. OPEX Plus expected to announce deep supply cuts despite calls and pressure from the U.S., To pump more.
3: And Elon Musk's about face, reviving his $44 billion deal to buy Twitter and teasing X, sparking fresh debate about what he plans to do with the service if he eventually owns it.
1: The market's on track for a lower open after that big two-day rally. It's good to have Santoli uh, back mm. at the desk after a few days away. Uh, four times we've had back-to-back 2% since 1953.
3: Pretty rare. Um, I think I think maybe as much as 5.7%. That's the rare part, exactly that magnitude of a gain. It has been uh, pretty rare to have that two days in a row, especially to start a quarter, to start a month. So people are slicing it. It has happened as the market has roared off of a very important low, it has also happened. Something like it has happened uh, as we keep getting with all of these statistical breakdowns during the 2008 period, where you did see these ferocious uh, bear market rallies, sometimes multi-month rallies. I think we have to keep that in mind. So I think there's a lot of good tea leaves you can read into the action itself. Um, the S&P 500 declined. Uh, below the June lows it got to 15 times forward earnings it, it kind of had a lot of the atmospherics that you tend to see at an extreme with the sentiment and positioning got uh, pretty blown out at the end of September. Now we've we've gotten the, the strong bounce and it's going to be tested I think by whether the Fed uh, officials come out and directly talk it down again. Um, and then you know the, the dollar and, and yields were stretched and they've eased back. And so we have to see if that's a, a trend or just a blip.
2: Exactly. I mean, the dollar index, worst day since June 16th yesterday. Speaking to your point, Fed officials, we've had a lot of Fed speak last week. We've had a lot of Fed speak so far this week. We've got more uh, later today with Bostick. Fed officials have given no indication for the most part of a pivot that would be anything remotely similar to what we've seen come out of Australia. Instead, they're warning that the fight against inflation is going to still require more time. And of course, that's going to make this OPEC meeting and this cut and the fact that we've already seen energy prices surging in anticipation of it, I think that much closer to watch, Carl, because inflation, inflation, inflation. And we know how pervasive higher energy prices are to other aspects of the economy.
1: Yeah. As, as Morgan said, a lot of uh, I- impact on Fed speak last couple days. A lot of discussion about Brainerd, talking about the, some of the, the, the negative externalities of hiking rates. But then Daly comes along, talks about inflation being a toxin.
4: Here's what mm. she said. Unlike, it's a great time to be a worker. Workers have all this power. I don't see a lot of power if your real wages are falling nine percent. And so that is sort of an example of why inflation is a corrosive. Um, if we let it go, it's a corrosive disease. It's a toxin that erodes the real purchasing power of people and actually hurts the, the less advantaged more. They bear a higher ta- tax because of inflation, and they're the very people that we want in an inclusive economy.
1: So a lot of discussion this morning about some of the forward-looking indicators. Jolts was a good example. ISM employment, which does show a lot of wood getting chopped. But then J.P. Morgan, for example, comes along today and says, this is not a Fed that goes by those numbers. They're better about telling you what's happened than what's happening. It's just... Sort of how they're built.
2: And it, and it speaks to the core inflation discussion. And while the market pays very close attention to CPI, and certainly I think Fed officials do as well, it's the PCE numbers that matter the most. Housing is a huge part of that component, or a huge component within uh, that measure, not to mention wages. And yes, wage growth is not keeping up with the increase we've seen in, in prices, but it has been moving higher, and it does speak to. Core inflation lasting and being stickier, perhaps longer than at least had previously been. Yeah, I mean
3: they, they officials have told us from Powell on down, and when Vice Chair Brainerd, I think several months ago recast the inflation fight as the populist thing to do. They were looking for public buy-in to say that, yes, we have to moderate uh, employment because uh, everybody gets uh, hurt by high uh, and persistent inflation. And they've changed their metrics multiple times, right? We're talking about University of Michigan sentiment looked out of whack in terms of expectations, gasoline prices, all the stuff that moderated doesn't matter until they see several months of actual inflation numbers down. the other piece of it, though, is we're closer to where they say we're going. I mean, time has passed. You're in October. We're talking about capping out in the first part of next year. You're going to be at 4% at the high end after the November hike, most likely. You're in, the, you're in the vicinity of where they think that we need to go. So we can talk about a pivot. We can talk about a pause. Even if you go by what they're telling us, we're not that far away. The question is, is this something get hurt in the markets? Do you have some kind of stress event in the capital markets before that?
2: Yeah. Also, back just back to your point before we bring our guest in, uh, when you have Uber saying that the driver shortage is over uh, overnight, and then to your point, the fact that some of that labor data is showing signs of easing, uh, certainly going to be key for the Fed moving yeah, forward even, as well.
1: Even ADP, which yeah. comes yes. with a lot of caveats these days, uh, the pay gains for job uh, changers, uh, lowest in the history of their series. Yeah. So we're going to watch all that.
2: Okay, well, for more on the markets, as we are poised to start this Wednesday lower for the major averages, we are joined now by Sam Stovall, chief investment strategist at CFRA Research. Sam, great to have you on today. Uh, This roaring rally that we've seen over the last two days that gave the Dow and the S&P their best two-day gains in, in more than two years, does it have footing here, or do you expect that it's not sustainable? And this is another one of those relief rallies we've been seeing in the spare market.
5: Well, good morning, Morgan. Uh, The first question that I have is, is this really just a relief rally? Uh, Is it the beginning of a new bull or is it simply a bounce that will be sold into? Uh, A lot of buzz from the technicians uh, on YouTube, et cetera, in the last couple of days in terms of uh, the number of participants so the breadth was incredibly strong uh even talking about a, a Zweig, uh, recovery uh so what to look for in the next 10 trading days etc i would still tend to say that we uh while the last five uh, were five of the last uh bear markets since 1950 ended in october i still think we have a ways to go we're down 25 percent but Bear markets with recessions usually decline about 35 percent, and they do so over a 15-month period.
2: So what are some of those key factors or data that you're going to be watching for in terms of that leg lower?
5: Well, I'm looking for the... um, a good Fibonacci retracement would bring us down to about 3,200 on the S&P 500. That would equate to a P.E. of 14.9, which actually is the uh, the average decline that we typically see in P.E.s in bear markets with recessions, basically getting trimmed by one-third. Uh, so I would tend to say that while we do have these uh, relief rallies, etc., uh, I think that we are likely to continue in a downward mode probably until the first quarter of next year uh, with a number close to 3,200 on the S&P.
1: Hey Sam, does that selling begin um, come Q3, Q4 guidance season? Or, I mean, what about the the seasonality certainly uh, entering the sweet spot of midterm years?
5: Oh sure, well when you look to history uh, in terms of when is the best of the 16 quarters of the presidential cycle, we are entering that now. fourth quarter of midterm years the second best first quarter of year three is the best uh, but uh, bear markets do tend to alter history when you look to the uh, 14 bear market years going back to the late 1940s if we had not reached a bear market bottom by the end of September uh, then we traditionally ended up continuing in a downward mode not only for October, but also for the year itself. Uh, so essentially, I, I still think that because we have not, uh, or likely not hit a bottom, that we still have more uh, some more erosion to go.
3: Sam, um, I guess it always depends on exactly what sort of game one is playing in terms of, look, do you wanna make sure that you don't buy prematurely if you're gonna have to ride the market lower for some period of time? Um, I just wonder what what the history might tell us about once the market's down 20, 25 percent, how long out do you have to look before you're basically pretty well assured that you're going to uh, have done well uh, if you have a longer term
5: time horizon? Well Mike I think what you're basically saying is can we look for a little bit of sun amongst these dark clouds and the answer is absolutely. Um, It has only taken an average of three months to uh, start a new bull market meaning rising by 20% or more uh, following the end of bear markets and also following these bear markets with recessions. The market was up an average of 47% 12 months later. Uh, So with us being down 25% and Many of the bear markets with recessions since World War II did end below the minus 30% level. Really, it was only the mid-70s, uh, early 2000s, and then the financial crisis of 07 through 09 that we endured a mega meltdown, which I do not think we're likely to experience. Uh, so I would tend to say that once the bottom has been put in place, uh, then the uh, vacuum of valuations gets filled very quickly.
2: So, Sam, what do investors maybe start to nibble at right now? If you look at history and and what's performed better in past bear markets, what do they steer clear of in in expectation of this move lower for the broader market?
5: Well, traditionally, uh, you move away from the defensive. So the defensives, meaning consumer staples, healthcare, utilities, which hold up the best during a bear market, are the ones that investors flee from and move toward Those that were beaten up quite a bit. I think we got a sneak peek- uh, yesterday and the day before. As to what investors want to gravitate toward. In terms of size it's mid caps in terms of style it's value- Uh, and in terms of industries or sectors it's energy materials industrials- Uh, so looking for companies that have that are mid cap- uh, that have relatively low P. E. S. and good growth potential in the mid-cap value space, I think, is where you'd want to be.
2: Sam Stovall, thanks for joining us this morning. My
5: pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Meantime, oil ministers have arrived at the OPEC Plus meeting. The watch is on for some of these deep supply cuts. Our Brian Sullivan is still in Vienna, Austria, with the latest big day. Brian, good morning.
6: Yeah, I mean, Carl, it really is a big day. And I know the price of oil is not moving a whole lot now, but the price of oil has moved 10 bucks a barrel in the last couple of days on this expectation. And we are expecting a cut of about 2 million barrels per day. Now, the 2 million barrels is not going to come off the market because a lot of these OPEC members are not hitting their quotas anyway. Call it 50 to 60%. So if that's the case, Carl, we're talking about maybe a million physical barrels a day actually coming off the market. Now, are they expected to do it all at once? No. All of our sources telling us, the delegates that we have texted and talked to say, this is probably going to be a rolling 2 million barrels over a certain amount of time. But focus less, perhaps, on the number and more on the symbolism, guys, of this. OPEC was an organization a year ago, a year and a half ago, where they're talking about OPEC's dead. The UAE and Saudi Arabia are fighting that the organization has, has outlived its course and is done. We're seeing the Saudi minister arrive. We're seeing the Russian minister arrive, by the way. This is OPEC saying, not only are we aligned, we're aligned with Russia. By the way, bringing the ties closer together with Russia. U.S. is going to be very upset about that. But also that we are in charge of at least half the global oil market. This is, unfortunately, a direct rebuke to the White House, who, by all reports, Kayla Tosche reported the same, was trying desperately to stop this production cut. It's happening, guys, and it's happening in a tight market. I have never seen a cut when the market is as tight as this. This can only be seen as sending a pretty loud message.
2: So many cross-currents here. When you look at energy stocks, Brian, uh, up 9% over the past week, 10% just since the start of this week on this move in crude prices. So what does this mean for oil and gas stocks? And then, of course, what are U.S. oil and gas executives saying? I mean, I think back to 2015, 2016, it was a very different dynamic on the world stage where oil was concerned.
6: Yeah, absolutely, Morgan. I was texting and emailing with some executives uh, yesterday and this morning. Scott Sheffield, a pioneer, maybe the most listened to. By the way, the only oil and gas CEO I've ever seen at an OPEC meeting. He said OPEC is going to defend $100 on Brent. So that would be, what, $94, $95 on WTI. He thought that was the right move. So what do they think? I mean, look at oil and gas stocks today. By the way, not to jump in, we've got Paul Sankey of Sankey Research who's standing right here. So he, you actually are an analyst. Very quickly, Paul, is this, is this good for the U.S. oil and gas sector?
7: At face value, it is, but we're worried about the, uh, the economy and about the demand side, Brian. So ultimately, if this damages the global economy and, and ultimately demand for oil, it's actually not as good as... It will it? Will it damage the global economy? I think we're worried about it going into winter, definitely.
6: Okay. Oh, thanks. It's kind of an impromptu there from Paul. But that's what you get by being on the ground here. So that's the concern, guys. Maybe good in the short term for U.S. oil and gas producers. If oil hits back to $100, $120 a barrel, which is entirely possible as we head into winter, will that crush, to Paul's point, the global economy and then send oil back down? That's the risk that OPEC and Russia are taking. We're waiting on the press conference, hopefully get more answers about why they're doing it. It's a very unusual cut at a very unusual time.
1: Uh, yeah, hence the uh, the jawboning by the White House, Brian. What a day to have you there. You're totally our eyes and ears. We'll talk uh, frequently today, our Brian Sullivan in Vienna today. Thanks. When we come back, a closer look at Elon Musk's about face on Twitter, reviving that original 54.20. Stock's going to open just north of 51 today. Take a look at the pre-market as we do try to give back some of the last couple days. More Squawk on the Streets back in a moment.
4: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
1: Twitter shares soared yesterday, as you know, after news that Elon Musk will go ahead with that planned $44 billion deal to take the company private. Joining us this morning to discuss Twitter's outlook, MKM partners Rohit Kilcarni. Uh, thanks for joining us, reading your note this morning. You do say uh, could potentially cease to be a public company uh, by the end of uh, next week. I guess the question is going to be what kinds of restructurings he can do and whether or not they ever do return to the public markets.
0: Uh, hey, thanks for having me. And again, uh, uh, what I would say is this: uh, does not mean that this deal is closed. As in, at this point, I think uh, uh, let's agree that Musk uh, does not deserve a lot of benefit of doubt here. But uh, assuming he follows through, assuming that uh, this is this time it's for real, um, then uh, probably the first things, uh, first order of business is to figure out the management team, figure out who's going to lead this company, and. Uh, figure out the top C-level execs. Uh, He's been pretty vocal uh, criticizing current management team. So that's going to be the first order of business. Highly unlikely Musk wants to run Twitter on a day-to-day basis, in my opinion.
1: Right. Are we talking about pretty aggressive cost-cutting internally?
0: Uh, Probably cost-cutting could come secondary, in my opinion. Uh, first uh, First order of business would just be Uh, stemming uh, employee churn and and having better employee retention. And the first six months could be whether this is something that he wants to run as uh, a company that wants to come back to public markets or would it be uh, something that he would fold under this new x.com. He did tweet something about uh, a super app uh, that Twitter could be part of. If that's the vision, that could mean that uh, this is going to be a a piece of the puzzle that uh, Musk wants to just play around in the private markets.
2: I mean, there's still a lot of unknowns here. And to your point, a big asterisk around the deal still closing. Um, Is your expectation though, that this is a company that after taking private, after being invested in, could ultimately come back to the public markets? What's your thesis? Um,
0: At this point, uh, knowing what we know right now, uh, Twitter is better restructured, private and better come back, uh, more healthy, a better business model To the public markets it's too large to stay private it already would be under a lot of public scrutiny given the role that twitter plays in the in the global uh, media and investment community so uh, regardless of whether it's a private or a public company there would be public scrutiny in my opinion so it's better off restructured in the private markets and coming back uh, as a public company with healthier fundamentals
2: what do these dynamics mean in terms of winners and losers for the other social media
0: names? Um, in, the, in the near term, I feel uh, there, are, there are going to be more, um, there, there could be more market share shift away from Twitter into smaller companies, into other comparable social media apps. I think uh, companies like Pinterest or maybe perhaps Snap could also be uh, there to uh, win a little bit of extra market share as Twitter figures out its core business model. Uh, Musk has talked about subscriptions, he's talked about a lot of new things that he would want to play around Twitter with. So while that happens, advertisers would want to figure out how do we now allocate our uh, dollars on an incremental basis. So there is probably some market share shift that's going to happen next year. So Pinterest and Snap could be kind of small winners while Twitter figures out, while Musk figures out whether this is a subscription business, this is an advertising business. There is a there is a blurring the line between how how those two business models uh, kind of uh, evolve as such.
3: Uh, Rohit, you know the latest story Musk is offering is this you know all in one X app. I mean we don't know how serious or how strategic this is. Would Twitter be uh, the likely candidate to to crack that possibility if if one company were going to be it?
0: Um, Again, uh, my, my general bias is having a super app uh, with, a, with a focus on uh, uh, North America, Western Europe, is is going to be hard to pull off. There are already winners in every stack of that super app, unlike what we have seen in China. So uh, many companies have tried to be a super app, no matter which cut you want to take at. So I feel uh, a little bit suspicious as to how he can pull this off. Perhaps there is a specific slice of media that he wants to uh, be a, uh, become a super app off, we would love to see that vision. But I think uh, at, at the get-go, knowing what we know right now, I, I feel uh, uh, pulling this off could be a little bit harder. Um, Twitter as part of a super app is just going to be a very hard vision to um, uh, pull off.
1: Well, Reuters uh, citing sources now saying uh, Musk and the Twitter team have not yet reached an agreement to end litigation. So, the suspense is not over quite yet. Rohit, well, hey, thank you. Uh, great to see you. Royal Kilkarni over at MKM. Take a look at the uh, pre market here as we kick off a, a Wednesday morning. Uh, futures down about 350 on the Dow. Back in a moment.
4: With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need.
1: Taking stock of what appears to be a reversal on this Wednesday. Europe gave is giving back about 1% this morning. As Mike pointed out, you got the dollar index back above 111. VIX, though, still sub 30. Opening bell in four minutes. Watching the pre-market lower, as we said earlier, Mike, I was surprised Um, some of the technicians yesterday, last night, try to argue this was not last couple days, not all short covering, right. not all calendar, and that resistance still lies north of 3,900 or so.
3: Yeah, you're not really going to know if it's more than a reflex bounce until at least you surmount that 3,900 area into 4,000. Look, it was something like 18 to 1 advancing versus declining stocks. It seemed like there was a real flush of genuine buying interest. It's hard to kind of pick up exactly what short covering, exactly what is people just feeling under going into uh, a new quarter uh, if the market's going to make a Stand near the
1: June lows. That's a did. We'll keep our eye on um, crude. Obviously, we mentioned uh, the OPEC meeting today. Oil trading just above eighty-seven. Uh, let's get to the opening bell here in the CNBC Real Time Exchange and the Big Board. It's Empire State Realty Trust celebrating the forty-fourth annual Empire State Building run-up. You ever done that? No. Mm-hmm. Sounds like ex- quite the exercise, though. At the Nasdaq. It's my money, my future. A digital financial education platform as Brett fills in. Mike, I'll tell you, the swings in Brett, last four sessions have been remarkable. The swings either entirely red or green.
3: It has. uh, First of all, that's kind of the way it is when you have a market under this much stress that got this oversold. There is a little bit of a school of, uh, of thought, though, that says, that we have just mechanically in this market, uh, it, it, it seems very driven by you know, the futures leading, the ETFs, uh, the, the kind of algorithmic cross-asset trades that you get when yields and, dollar, and the dollar do one thing and stocks are meant to do another. So you don't want to discount the breadth numbers because it's actually not that easy to get two days in a row of 90% pr- plus upside uh, you know, breadth, which we got. Uh, but it, it is something that seems like it has happened more frequently, and of course, June, a lot A lot of people were giving a lot of credit to that breath off the lows as saying it really seemed to uh, make a retest unlikely, and we got the retest.
2: Yeah. I mean, we're we're giving back a fraction of the gains from the last couple of days, and it's pretty incredible to say that when the S&P is down 1% right now. The Nasdaq's down 1.3% as well, and the Dow is also down almost 1%. To your point, though, every S&P sector is in the red except for energy. Given what we're seeing play out in Europe right now uh, with this OPEC Plus meeting, uh, that's another incredible swing, another incredible move we've seen over the last couple of months. Just to think that three months ago we were at 120 bucks a barrel crude oil, both WTI and Brent. We drop back down, now we're trading around 90, and there does seem to be this growing expectation that we could be looking at 100 again sooner rather than later. Uh, yeah,
1: that's certainly what JP Morgan's point, Sully's point. And the, and the the energy up. sector,
3: I mean, you could say, well, it's really kind of gone nowhere since late March, but the overall market has buckled since then, and it was already at a, a huge, had a huge run into March. So it's really held the value, uh, and, you know, the people seem pretty okay with how the companies can operate with crude and natural gas at these levels, if nothing else. Yeah.
1: Keeping our eye on autos today. Uh, Adam Jonas from Morgan Stanley weighing in with a couple of calls. One is an upgrade of Ford, uh, basically arguing that the company's restructuring where they created Ford Blue is gonna better align the capex needs of the EV part of the business. Um, He says it's more than just an accounting change. At the same time, he does cut the target on GM. He was at 42, he goes down to 30. Uh, Basically, in his words, Morgan trying to get ahead of what he thinks is going to be a warning to come. Also removing the entire Evaluation of that uh, says that the losses there uh, could potentially double over the next that couple of years. That
2: definitely got my attention. And certainly he's been on the forefront in terms of the analysis around some of those newer technologies where EVs and self-driving is concerned, um, not just at GM but elsewhere too. Auto complex moving from a risk to a necessity, still not recession bottom buy signal. Uh, and, of course, this on a day where we have our own Phil Lebeau reporting that auto loans topping $1,000 are not so unusual anymore, which... Yeah, 1000 a,
3: a month, right. 1000 a, exactly. a month, yeah. thank
2: you, um, which got my attention.
3: Absolutely. Um, it's, it's really somewhat of a microcosm, Jonas's call, of what we're seeing across uh, the market and the economy when it comes to cyclical stocks. They look really cheap, it looks like the market's done a lot of the valuation work based on current and observable earnings. But as as Jonas points out, in a recession, the earnings kind of go away with these high fixed cost businesses. You can't count on the the estimates being okay. Uh, And in fact, if you're in a recession or you're going through one, the stocks tend to look more expensive, cyclical stocks do, uh, on a PE basis, and you have to look toward other things like price to sale. So, it's a a kind of a nuanced call or maybe an equivocal call, he's saying upgrading forward but the price target of 14 is not exactly uh, you know showing raging upside potential. And is similar with home builders, right? The home building stocks as a group trade at six times forward earnings. That means the market doesn't really think those earnings are going to be reliably coming through or that that's going to be a peak if they do.
2: And housing, of course, is one of those cracks we've seen open wider and faster than other aspects of the market in the midst of this Fed tightening cycle. Just this morning, mortgage apps, uh, according to the Mortgage Brokers Association, a drop of 14%. It's the lowest since 1997. Average 30-year mortgage rate rises to 6.75%. That's the highest since 2006. So we're seeing that affordability puzzle tip Dramatically, and uh, and we are starting to see see potential signs of at least a housing recession take root too. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, that thirty-year fixed up for seven straight weeks. You got to fold in some impact from Hurricane Ian That's into some of that. Wow. Uh, but to, to see mortgage apps down fourteen is just amazing.
3: I mean, the velocity of the move in in mortgage rates is is all you really have to know. I mean, you know, people could say, oh, we were at six, seven percent. 30-year fixed rates for for years, and the market did fine. Yeah, of course, but you didn't come from three and two in a matter of months. That's the difference. Uh, People's entire pricing equation gets thrown off, so uh, we just don't know exactly how uh, how much activity has to moderate to make the supply-demand look okay. Prices have to be the thing to move, I guess, but that happens slowly.
1: Uh, kind of brings us to some calls on the banks this morning. Atlantic cutting both Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, basically on the investment banking slump, which is interesting because just yesterday, uh, Citi put a positive catalyst on JPM, suggesting that the Q3 print's going to come in better than expected. Yeah. And that's just a couple weeks away.
3: I think the capital market side, uh, depending on the bank, could be okay. Volumes have been great. We're talking about these FX things. But, you know, they have to be taking losses on, uh, on the fixed income inventories that they have. That's something that's a bit of a headwind. Uh, and just the fee income its just not there, right? I mean, you have balances going down in terms of investor portfolios. Uh, that's a headwind. It, it, to me, it's all a question of, do you bet that we're at rock bottom activity in investment banking? Does m and perk up? Are they not going to really be saddled by too many of these loss-making uh, credit deals like we're seeing with Citrix and, uh, and I was potentially just Twitter. Bring that Twitter. Up.
2: Yeah, yeah. Citrix, Twitter. Uh, let's see. I have a whole. I have a list going here. Lumen Technologies so far definitely yeah. seems to be an area to watch when we get those earnings next week. Yeah.
1: The Twitter thing. There's so many legs yeah. to the Twitter story. There's the impact, yeah. of course, on on some of the financiers of the deal. Uh, lawyers, or if this does not end yeah. up in a in a continued trial, are going to lose out on some billable hours. Interesting. Colorado Reuters this morning that. In the wake of yesterday's news, employees at the, at the headquarters were playing the Clash: "Should I Stay or Should I Go?" <laughs> yeah. in the cafeteria. Um, as they're, I mean, in for a wild ride. I think, well, especially
3: gardens. given that you know the the tech labor market has changed a fair bit since this deal first came out there, and you know yeah. the idea that you can just sort of got to parachute out and and, and have a soft landing for yourself is is not uh, not too clear. I think that the losses when it comes to the financing of these deals, it's completely manageable in the context of these banks' balance sheets. The final deal in a cycle that banks commit to is always going to be the one that you get stung by. Um, Think about a a bank giving you a, a mortgage rate lock. You know. If if, if rates surge, that bank takes a bit of a loss, at least on paper, uh, if they're gonna honor the lock, but then after that, everything reprices. So I don't think it's hobbling them, but it's certainly not helping.
2: Mm. I mean, just going back to the tech labor landscape for a moment though, you also have the reports that Amazon is freezing corporate hiring in its retail business. It's still hiring in things like cloud, but that perhaps uh, is another sign of some softening in certain areas of the market. And it kind of goes back to the conversation we had just a couple days ago about inventory as well. And, uh, and we do know that Amazon, under Andy Jassy, is looking to unwind some of that gangbusters pandemic era expansion that we've seen in certain aspects of the business. But again, speaking to your point, some of the areas within the sector where um, things are softening a little bit. Yeah the Twitter turnover.
1: Yeah, so. it's no longer about freezing at uh, warehouse and shipping. It's now reaching the corporate, uh, the core retail uh, and, uh, and and corporate teams. Although uh, meta, the layoffs
3: in aggregate, they still are only kind of stubbornly going up. That's yep. one of those puzzles that we have to sort out. Maybe it's just a lag.
1: Yeah, uh, speaking of which meta, uh, shrinking some offices. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess uh, occupancy in their offices had run maybe 65% pre-COVID, now 50% and uh, they're gonna try to squeeze more efficiency out of real estate. Interesting too, because the journal front page today is about retail fronts having more stores open now than shrink. So there's been some strange uh, cross currents in sort of brick and mortar uh, occupancy and activity in general.
2: It's choppy. There was also, I mean, there's also the, the report from CBRE that since the pandemic began around 50 US office blocks have been or are being redeveloped into multifamily apartment complexes, speaking to some of these shifting dynamics in terms of what the real estate market is uh, is requiring right now, coming out of the pandemic.
3: I was just going to look at uh, in terms of the you know the market leadership early on is is very much energy as well as uh, some staples and stuff that seem like. Uh, did not, you know, kind of was not at the center uh, of the uh, of the rally for the last couple of days. Uh, and Visa is one, too, that's uh, that's perked up just a little bit. It's in the it's in the green right now. And I, I'm looking at that as a benchmark for the formerly expensive, very crowded growth stocks that have not really been able to uh, to kind of get off the mat. Alphabet and Microsoft in theory are the tells alphabet still below the June lows Uh, that was one that really did succumb Uh, and even though the the Nasdaq as a whole was up big over two days it's not as if that was the whole story in terms of what was driving things higher so I think you still have this market where the average stock has done better than the market cap weighted indexes and the mega caps and it doesn't seem like this this little crucible of this rally has changed that just yet.
2: Just to expand out uh, and add a geopolitical lens to the conversation as well this morning, defense and aerospace stocks are taking a breather here uh, in this broader market downdraft as well. But uh, they've had a pretty strong week, unsurprisingly, uh, so far up until today, in part because they had that L3 Harris deal to buy some military communications. Assets from from satellite operator Viasat. Um, but the other thing in focus here with this OPEC meeting that is playing out in Vienna right now is going to be whether there are any ramifications from the U.S. side on things like defense. Uh, the sa- Saudi Arabia has historically played this outsized role in foreign military sa- sales for the U.S. defense industry. It's actually the lead importer of U.S. made weapons, and you've had some lawmakers like U.S. Rep. Ro Khanna, coming out and saying that this could be an area where you see retaliation. Now, keep in mind, under the Biden administration, we've already seen some curtailing of certain types of sales uh, to, of weapons to Saudi Arabia. Uh, just earlier this year, they banned U.S. offensive weapons sales uh, to Riyadh. But this is going to be something to keep an eye on. Uh, and it's certainly something we did speak to l Harris, CEO and Chairman Chris Kubasic about just yesterday. Take a listen.
6: About 20, 22% of our revenue comes from uh, our international customers, our allies, obviously, UK, Australia, Canada, Far East, Mideast, around the globe. So we adjust accordingly. We obviously follow the rules and the regulations. Um, and as of today, you know, we continue to support our allies. A lot of this acquisition, we talked about the network going across services, going across platforms. Not only does that apply to the US, it applies to our allies coalition warfare and they'll either be part of this process or not we'll have to see how it plays out in the uh, weeks and uh, days ahead.
2: And we will have to see how it plays out in the meantime as we do start to look toward earnings over the next couple of weeks when it does come to some of these uh, defense manufacturers aerospace and defense companies uh, supply chain labor. Inflation, all the key things we talk about in focus for these names, which are historically more defensive yeah, within the sure. industrial sector anyway. We
1: had Senator Murphy telling our Hadley Gamble maybe the alliance with the Saudis needs to be rethought. At the same time, this Times piece about Taiwan and how we're trying to turn it basically into a, a weapons depot in right. case China does get active. Pretty fascinating implications for uh, defense there. Dow's down 278. Let's check bonds this morning. We did say the 10 year got to 37 this morning. We're going to watch that. Two year was about. Uh, 414. Uh, we do have Bostick uh, this afternoon, and ISM Services coming up at the top of the hour.
8: Welcome back to Squawk on the Street, Rich Santelli here live at CMEHQ with breaking news: S&P Global PMIs on the service side. These are September finals, 49.3, 49.3. That usurps 49.2, and that makes it official. Three months of under 50 in a row and if we look at the composite 49.5 an improvement over the mid-month read at 49.3 but still also the third under 50 in a row and do remember that when you look at the middle one under 50 that was August uh, 44.6 on the composite and 43.7 on services Both those numbers were the lowest since May of 2020. So you can see we are really starting to reflect some of the slowing that we hear from some of our global trading partners. We still have the big services ISM at top of the hour. Make sure you join me. Squawk on the Street will return after a short break.
1: Dow coming off the opening loss, uh, down now 218. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Morning, Bob.
9: Good morning, Carl. The market giveth and the market taketh away here. Let's look at the movers. Uh, Energy is having a nice morning here. Of course, WTI near $87, so that's the component up but what you want to watch is the risk on stuff what's risk on it's materials it's semiconductors it's home builders it's transport stocks they have had big rallies in the last couple days and you see them giving back some of the gains remember on friday we were sitting essentially at fifty two week lows uh, for example in many of the industrials particularly transport so airlines like american were essentially at sitting fifty two week lows they had an enormous two day rally some of them up six seven percent Monday and Tuesday, they're giving back some of those gains. Uh, So railroads also at 52-week lows at the end of last week. Uh, They rallied. They're also to the downside. Same with the metals uh, complex. uh, Freeport being the leader in the group. Uh, Down last week, big move to the upside Monday and Tuesday. uh, And now... Report and some of the other uh, aluminum components, the uh, steel companies like Nucor also giving back some of the gains. So is this a bear market rally the last two days? That's the big debate. I would just point out, and we've talked about this the last two days, the data has been very supportive for the Fed's position. ISM manufacturing Monday, so the prices paid component was lower, new orders were weaker. That jolts number last yesterday was amazing. We had a big drop in available job openings, over 1.1 million drop. That was enormous. The second biggest uh, on record, thanks to DataTrek for for that one uh, out. So the data has been better. FedSpeak is not getting better. That's not a surprise, though. I guess the issue is what happens on ISM services at 10 o'clock. This could be an unusually important one. Uh, Mike, I would point out that the prices paid component for ISM services has been dropping for months on end now. It's hit a high of 84 in April, 82. 80, 72, 71. This gets in the 60s. You're certainly going to be able to make some kind of argument, Mike, uh, that at least the prices paid components of both of the ISM reports are heading in the right direction.
3: Mike? Absolutely, Bob. Yeah, the leading indicators of inflation are getting uh, friendlier. We'll see if the real numbers follow suit. Appreciate it. Uh, Big bank stocks, meantime, pulling back this morning after surging more than 7% over the last two days. Joining us now is RBC Capital Markets head of U.S. Bank Equity Strategy, Gerard Cassidy. Uh, And Gerard, good morning. Uh, You know, banks, uh, much like the market as a whole, they're down a fair bit. They've kind of held their own against the S&P 500 uh, over the last few months. But the big question is, what has already been priced in in terms of a potential recession? What's your top-line take on that question? Mike, it's a
7: good question, and investors... They're asking that of us all the time, and I would suggest that the bank stocks are pricing in, obviously, an economic slowdown, and the question is possibly even a recession. Now, we do not believe this slowdown is going to be anything compared to what we saw in 08, 09, and the stocks don't reflect that either. But we think it's going to be more like 2001 and 2002, which was a recession, but the banks were very resilient. Most investors are not there yet, though. So they're pricing in something weaker than 2001 and 2, but not as bad as 08, 09 in our view.
3: I mean, clearly the, the rate story, which people thought like in January was going to be the whole deal that made banks a good play for uh, a rate hiking cycle, uh, has certainly come through, but it's being offset by, I guess, people anticipating what's going to be happening on the credit side uh, of things are we going to get a resolution to that debate that's kind of offsetting forces anytime soon?
7: Mike, you put your thumb right on the critical issue. That is it. And I think we will get a resolution to that, not this quarter. As you know, earnings will start October 14th with J.P. Morgan kicking it off. But I think we're going to see over the next three to six months that be resolved. And we know today credit is very strong for the banks. And I would suggest that the de-risking of the banking system has been very clear since the financial crisis. So this, this uh, issue on credit, we think will be resolved as people finally start to realize it won't be anywhere near as bad as 08, 09. And you're, and you're right. You look at the net interest revenue growth. We're seeing 20, 25% net interest revenue growth year over year. That's very powerful for the banks.
2: So given all the cross currents, Gerard, what are your top picks going into this earnings season?
7: Morgan, what we would do is focus on the regional banks, the right side of the balance sheet, as we like to call it. It's been 15 years since anyone's really had to focus on cheap core deposits. That is going to be the advantage the regional banks have over the larger banks over the next six to 12 months in this elevated interest rate environment. These banks also don't have the exposures to the leverage loans or the um, bridge loans that we might be seeing uh, being hung up over the next three months or so as the big money centers do. So the regionals, including names like m and Bank up in Buffalo, New York, PNC, Fifth Third, Key Corp, Regions, all very strong core funded banks with very solid commercial loan books, which will benefit from this higher rate environment as well.
1: Hey Gerard, you know, as for the big guys, you know, last couple quarters, a lot of the discussion is centered around expenses. But not in a shrinking way, in, in an in aggressive playing offense, hiring more engineers and playing more tech kind of way. How do you do that in the face of what we see as softening economic activity?
7: Carl, you're right. The tech spending has been very uh, large for the big banks and even for the regional banks. You know, we look at it relative to their asset size, and they're all spending anywhere from 35 to 40 basis points of assets on tech and they continue the need to do that in hiring those engineers that you just described as well as buying the software and hardware to execute. And this is an ongoing expense. It's been around for number, obviously, a number of years. And it's not something that they can really afford to cut back on as the digital age grows bigger and bigger in the banking system. So it's going to be something that they're going to have to absorb. Now, they can partially offset that with downsizing of branches, maybe personnel as well as a partial offset to the continued strong tech spending that we expect over the next couple of years.
3: Yeah, uh, that's obviously going to be one of the Things we're listening for uh, as we get into reporting season, Gerard. Thanks very much. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Mike. Got a lot more head on the market pullback today, of course, and the OPEC Plus meeting as the headlines continue uh, to fly out of Vienna and we await a press conference. Uh, S&P down 33 points, still close to 3760. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street.